Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds. On this podcast, we try to bring you different ways that you can look at financing or investing. And today I'm really excited to have a transactional attorney who actually works with several of the physicians in our group on real estate matters and capital, raising capital for projects. I'd like to welcome to the show, Nick McGrew. Hey, Nick. Hey, thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. I am so excited to learn from you today. This is an area I don't have a lot of expertise in myself, so I'm going to be one of your students today. Awesome. Hopefully I can shed a little bit of light on the areas that you're not so clear on. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, I guess let's start with real estate. That's always something that physicians are asking about. And I think you do a lot with syndications, bringing physicians together into investment groups, raising the capital. Where does someone start if they want to get into that niche of investing? So I think one of the places to start is if they're listening right now, this is a good place to start educating yourself, kind of figuring out what does it look like? What are people doing? What are they doing that makes them successful? What are they doing that maybe hasn't been so great? So I'd say education is one of the first place, but I also am a big person that also advocates for not having analysis paralysis because I get how this can seem scary and daunting and we feel like there's so much we got to learn. Let me just keep learning. And then five years later, we're still learning and haven't dove in yet. Obviously, you don't want to dive in not knowing anything, but a lot of the learning you're going to get is going to be once you start doing it as well. So we do want to educate, but we also want to be in a place where we're trying to get ready to take action. I'd say another next step you want to do is networking, because part of that helps with both the education side, as well as when you're networking, you might be finding your partners or future investors and casting that net wider is just going to help you in many different aspects of whatever avenue you're trying to go through with real estate or other investments. Do you typically start with trying to gather your investors together first, or do you find that magical property that you really want to buy and then try to find your investors? I mean, where's the chicken and where's the egg here? So my clients that are more successful, they say, you're always looking for investors. Even when you don't have a deal, even when you don't think you want to do a deal in the next couple of months, you're still looking for investors because when you have that deal on the table and you're under contract, a lot of your focus is going to be on that. And so if you get the deal and now you've got to start kind of educating your investors about what you do and what the deal is, that's going to put you a little bit behind. So typically the more seasoned syndicators and people in this space They'll have a roster of investors that they're constantly nurturing. They'll have other people that they're meeting and trying to kind of get them to acclimate into what they do and the types of investments that they engage in so that when a deal does come, that potential investor at least has some of those base questions already answered. And so you're not starting from ground zero. They're a little bit further along because again, when you have that deal on the table, typically there's timelines. And so you don't have all the time in the world. And so you want to try to do as much stuff that you can before the deal's on the tables, when there's no timeline at all. So I'd say you're looking for investors constantly, always. And then as you have a deal, then you start talking to them about the specific investment that's for them or potentially for them. 
how do you typically, if you are the syndicator, how do you typically try to structure these contracts? How do you know how much of a profit that you're going to give back to your investors and what type of time frame are you looking at? Where do you start with that? Yeah. So when you're doing this, you'll do underwriting and financial modeling. And so in that, there are a lot of assumptions because with all this, we are guessing who knows what five years is going to look like from now. So we're making some educated guesses. And so when you're doing your underwriting, that's essentially what you're doing. You're saying, okay, here's what I think will happen. Here's what will happen. If everything goes perfect, here's what will happen. Everything goes bad. Here's what will happen. And then we want to try to project kind of in that middle. So what do we think is the likelihood of something that's actually going to happen? And so your underwriting helps influence what those returns can look like, because that tells you how well you think the deal is going to do in the first place. And then from there, once you know what the deal can handle, I always tell my clients, I say, you've got to be concerned about a couple of different people or parties when you're determining the splits and the distribution terms. So number one, you do the underwriting because you don't want to project or promise something that the deal is just not going to be able to provide. So number one, we got to know what the deal can handle. Then we also want to know what you as the syndicator need, because you're doing a lot of work for this. So you don't, you're not doing this out of love, maybe a little bit of love, but not complete love. You're also trying to get some compensation as well. So we want to know what you're trying to get out, out of it for the work you've done. And then we also look at what do the investors need? What's the market looking like? For instance, if you're saying, yeah, I'm going to offer you a 5% preferred return, and there's lots of other deals that are giving a 9 or 10% preferred return, those investors probably are not going to come to you. And so you do have to be aware of what are, it's not so much competition, so to speak, but there are kind of some generalities in the market. And you want to, if you're outside of those generalities, then you want to have a reason why. I've had some clients where we were in a market where people were giving like 8 or 10% press. And I had one client, he says, yeah, my investors, they take a 5% press and they like it and they're good with it. And so for him, it works. Whereas other investors say, yeah, you know, I used to give 6% press, but now people are giving 8 or 10. So I've had to move up because my investors are saying, hey, what's going on with those ones over there? So you want to look at what your deal can handle, what you're trying to get out of the deal, and then also what your investors might be looking for out of the deal as well. And that's between looking through all those things, that'll help you come up with a return structure that should work for everybody. As an investor coming into the syndication, are you absolutely guaranteed that you're not going to lose money or are you accepting some of that risk as well? You are accepting all of the risk. All the risk. At least not the risk of the work, but your capital is taking on all that risk. So that's one thing for investors. If you're looking at a private offering, you're going to get some big disclosure document. It's typically called a PPM. It's going to look scary. And for me as a lawyer who does this, I'm like, I want it to look scary because I not only do I create these for clients that are raising capital, but I also do review them for clients that are looking to invest into something. And when I'm looking at them, you know, client might say, hey, it says that I might lose all my money. And I say, yeah, that can happen. You know, if we look at major, your know, Fortune 500 companies that you invest in them and you could lose your money. I think Bed Bath & Beyond is going bankrupt right now. A huge multi-million dollar company. People are losing money on that. So any investment you do, you can lose money. And if I have a client who's investing and they get a PPM and it's the PPM makes it sound like everything's roses and everything's going to be perfect and it's good, that's when I say run away because one of two things is happening. They either are not being real with you or not being transparent or they haven't done their own homework and they don't realize what risks there are because there's always going to be some risks. And so when you look at that, it does look scary. A lot of my clients, when I'm when they're the ones raising the capital, 
there's parts of it that in bold says, you might lose all of your money. And they're like, can we take this out? Can we please? It looks scary. And I say, no, we need to leave that in because it's true. And with that, we would rather have somebody be scared away because you said, hey, you might lose all your money like you could with any investment. We'd rather that scare them away versus for us to kind of sugarcoat it or soften it and they invest. And then if the worst case scenario does happen, they're going to be dramatically more upset. And they'll say, why Why didn't you tell me about this? Whereas if we put it in all bold, again, it's not what we're wanting. And thankfully, none of my clients have had that happen. But if it does happen and they say, why didn't you tell me about this? We can say, no, we screamed this at you and we let you know and we're doing things to mitigate it, but we did let you know this up front. That makes sense. Probably <laughs> wards off a few lawsuits by doing it that way. It's like, Definitely. there's no way you didn't know what might happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're trying to help someone find those properties, and I don't know if you're part of that part of the transaction or not, but for the syndicators, are they typically more successful with commercial properties, multifamily properties? I don't know, medical buildings, what what are people trying to go into right now? So the bulk of my clients typically are doing multifamily, but it really is find your asset class that you like. And like I said, get the education, study it up. And I have clients that do very successful in various asset classes. I have some that do mobile, mobile home parks, some that do self-storage. I've had some clients raise capital to buy ATMs. And so they have a network of ATMs that they're owning. So it's kind of fun for me because while I do a lot of multifamily, it's fun when you get those unique ones. I'm like, wow, I hadn't thought about raising capital for that. So really any asset class that you want, you can use syndication for. But for me, most of my clients are doing something real estate related, primarily multifamily or large single family residential developments as well. But we've done quite a bit of different asset classes also. Sounds like fun. When you have someone that's in that phase where they're trying to raise money, find investors, where do you start? I mean, surely it goes beyond just your friend network. Yeah. So the, what I tell clients is your first one is mostly going to be your friend network. Just because, you know, with this, there are risks. It's your first deal. And, you know, you're going to make mistakes, so to speak. I call them their learning opportunities. But you're going to look at 10 years later and say, man, that was crazy that I did that. That was insane. Why would I do that? And the reason that you did it then is because you didn't have the experience that you have now. And so a lot of savvy investors understand that. They say, look, your first couple of deals, you're not going to do them perfect. You're probably not going to lose everybody's money. But there might be some things that you could have done a little bit better. And so if they don't have that relationship with you where they want to also just invest in you, it might be a little bit harder for them to invest on the first or second deal. But then once you get that track record, you can start, people will start talking and saying, yeah, you know, I invested $10 and I got $20 back a month later, whatever it is, that way that word is going to spread around. And then the good thing about that is some investors might even start contacting you. But yeah, so I'd say you start out with your network, friends and family and kind of extended friends and family, and then go from there. But part of it also just depends on which security exemption that you're using, because there are some exemptions that require that you have a pre-existing substantial relationship with all the investors, whereas there also are some where they allow you to advertise and find random people to invest in your deal. But typically your first deal, the main funders are going to be those people that are in your network or pretty close to you. Okay. Now you've kind of touched on like some of the securities and the laws that govern this. Can you give us just a kindergartners level <laughs> education here as to what might be involved with, you know, some of the laws and securities that we need to know about? Yeah. So I'd say one of the big things that people don't often understand is a lot of people sell securities without realizing that they're selling a security. 
Uh, this is going to be a very simplified way, so it's not the exact, but typically if there's a passive investor, then that means you are selling a security to that passive investor. And so if you have a, if you're selling a security, then you either must register that security or have an exemption from registration. And so registration is, we think of IPOs and publicly traded companies, lots of documents, lots of disclosure, lots of expense, lots of vetting. It's a pretty long process and a very expensive process. And particularly in the case of real estate, usually you're not having anywhere near that timeline unless you're trying to set something up long-term potentially. But if you've got a deal you're trying to raise capital for now, you're not going to be able to register that security and also secure that deal because you're looking at probably at least a year. So we work with exempt offerings, meaning you don't have to register them. And so with that, with that lack of registration, because you're not having to publicly disclose all the information like a public company does, that's where the PPM comes in. And we have to make certain disclosures to let the investors know the merits and the risks of the deal so they can determine, does this make sense for me or not? Interesting. So definitely you want to do this with an attorney who's very skilled and knowledgeable in this area, not something you just want to take on your own for sure. Definitely. It's very complex, very nuanced. There's even, you know, even a lot of the stuff that I'm saying now, there are scenarios where what I'm saying also is not correct. So we really do need to look at each individual situation. What I'm saying is generally correct for in most cases, but there could be small situations where there's a nuance that makes it different or changes things. And so you really do want to make sure you're working with a professional. And I assume you've got some federal standards that you have to adhere to, and then you're probably also falling under different state laws, depending on where the property is. Is that correct? So regarding the acquisition of the property, absolutely, that's going to be governed by state law. But regarding raising the capital, in most cases, at least with a lot of my clients, the federal exemptions that we use preempt state securities laws. And so the good thing about that is that we say, wait, if we're following what the federal government says, we don't have to worry about what your individual state says or what any of the individual states where the investors are say. The one thing with that, though, is that while we are preempted from following individual state securities laws, most states say, hey, yeah, we know you don't have to follow our securities laws because you got a federal exemption. But if you have an investor in my state, then you got to notify me of that. And when you notify me, I want some money. And so this is one thing that I always tell clients that are doing syndication. I say, look, we're following federal laws, so we don't have to follow state laws. But at the end, we're going to have to notify the states where we have investors and they want money for that. And each state ranges. But I tell clients, estimate about $600 per state where you have an investor and that'll get you in the ballparks. It might be way less. It might be a little bit more, but that'll at least get you in the ballpark. But I always tell clients about that because it can be a hefty expense. You know, if we're saying $600 per state and you have investors in 10 states, that's another $10,000. So if you got 20 states, that's another 12000 And so I've had some clients to where they had a lot of investors in various states. And I think we ended up paying like 20 grand in filing fees oh. to give the notices. Yeah. So it can get pricey. I always tell brands, I'm like, look, this is something we're going to have on the back end that is a hefty expense. And sometimes the expense is more than even what you're paying me. And it's all going to the various states. So if I were wanting to become a syndicator myself and I came to you out of the blue, what type of timeframe would I be looking at? I mean, does it take a whole year to kind of register, get a business plan together before you ever try to create your first deal? Or I don't know, I guess, where do you start? Yes. Yeah. So when you come to us, typically clients, what we tell clients, look, when you have a deal, usually you have what's called a uh, letter of intent. 
And so they're saying, hey, I'm planning to buy this, but we're going to do some due diligence and look into this first. And so with the LOI, you're not locked in just yet, but you're trying to figure out, does this make sense to proceed forward? Usually there's going to be some due diligence period. So you might have 30 days or 45 or 60 days. And so I tell clients, I say, hey, when you get close to the end of due diligence, not necessarily at the end, but when you get to that point where you're like, all the big red flags are good, there might be a few small things, but I feel confident that we can work that out with the seller. So when you're pretty confident that you're going to move forward, that's when you want to reach out to us for, and also just let us know even when you have the LOI. So say, hey, we've got an LOI in, and so we'll be ready. But then when you get to near the end of that due diligence, that's when you want to really engage us and say, hey, let's get going. Because for us, it typically takes us about four to six weeks to get all the documents and filings and everything done. And when you're looking at a real estate acquisition, a lot of times you might have a 60 or 90 day close. And so if we're taking a month of that, uh, your timeline is going to be somewhat tight. And so that again goes back to making sure that you're always courting investors all the time. So even when you have that LOI and you haven't even gotten it yet, you want to say, hey, investor, I've got a deal coming through the pipeline. Here's some of the details. The attorneys are working on the paperwork. We just want to know, are you in? So that way, once we do have all the paperwork in, again, you're ahead. They're not going to say, okay, I got this document. Tell me about the deal. What's going on? All these questions. You can be answering a lot of those questions while me and my team are working on the document. So that way, when they get it, hopefully they'll just be ready to sign or just have a few more small questions and not those longer, bigger questions. And what kind of questions should I have asked you? What do I not know to even ask you? <laughs> Oh man, there's so much. It's, uh, it's to be, what do you not know to ask me? It goes back for, to medicine. You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we talked about the securities having a passive investor. That means that you're selling a security. That's one thing that a lot of people mess up. One thing I'd say that if you're the issuer, so you're the one that's raising the capital, a big thing you want to make sure that you're, you're doing regularly is communication. Over communicate. Especially, for instance, right now, we're in a situation where the market is not quite as strong as it has been in the last five years or so. And so there are some deals that are not quite hitting the projections that the issuer had projected before. The clients that are overly communicated are having no deal, no issue. I've had some clients where they tell me, yeah, you know, I called an investor and they said, thank you so much. We get it. We get the interest rates are rising. We get that the market's a little bit tougher. But you're the, I've invested in lots of syndications. You're the only one that called me to tell me what's going on, to let me know that you're on top of it and what you're doing. And so that goes such a long way. As a transaction attorney, I don't litigate, so I don't deal with lawsuits or anything like that. But one thing that I do always have in my mind is I'm trying to, one, prevent lawsuits. And then if my client does get into a lawsuit, I want to make sure that they're in the best position they can be. Communication is one big way to prevent the lawsuits. Because again, just kind of as I was saying, that, that investor said, yeah, you know, I get the market's crazy. I get interest rates are rising. So I don't think you're necessarily doing something bad or malicious if my returns are not going to be as good. But if I don't hear from you and I just hear, find out that my returns are going bad or I'm losing money or something like that, and you're silent, now I'm going to have all these stories playing in my head about what are they hiding from me? Why didn't they tell me? What did they do? What's wrong with this? Versus if you talk to them ahead of the time, you cut out all those stories that are going on in their head. So I always say over-communicate. Things don't have to go perfect, but you do want to make sure you let the clients know when they're not going perfect and what you're trying to do to right the ship. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> do you, like, if I came to you as an investor and said, I just don't even know who to call, 
Are you able to put people on the investor side and match them with the syndicators to try and help, you know, make a marriage of money and investment there? I walk a narrow path on that just because if they are two clients, I've got to be looking out for both of them. And just as I know, an investment can go bad. And so even if I had this great operator and somebody who wants to place capital, they might, the operations or the market might make the deal go bad. So I do sometimes do introductions, but I'll be very clear and I'll say, look, I have not vetted any deals. Make sure that you have your financial planner and your own underwriter looking through this. But this is a client that I know that's looking for capital. And then I'll let the two of them kind of work it out. So there are occasions where I might make introductions, but then from there, I step back and let them handle it between themselves. That makes sense. Sounds like a realtor trying to stay out of both sides of the transaction. You don't want to represent both sides. Yep, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's say you've got the syndicator, the investor, you found the property. Now, who determines like the property management? Does that all fall on the syndicator to make sure the property's managed, all the apartments are rented, the landscaping's done, all those little things? That's going to be based on the syndicators. So you that's oh that's one thing that maybe we didn't talk about. You want to have a team. We kind of hinted on that. So I obviously am going to say you need to have a lawyer on the team, but you really do because this stuff is complex. You're going to want to have an accountant or CPA, somebody who's dealing with the taxes and financial stuff. You might also have a separate person that does with the actual underwriting and the financial modeling so you know your numbers are correct. Another thing that's another person or task for the team is just the administrative work. Taking in capital is a lot more work than people think because if I send you money and I have a question, I'm going to call you and I'm going to expect you to pick up. And if there's 50 of me, that's 50 phone calls that are being expected to be picked up. So having somebody that helps with those investor relations and the administrative side, that's important as well. And then, yeah, usually the management team, the syndicator, they'll have somebody on their team that's in charge of asset management. So they may not be doing the day-to-day, you know, hiring the landscaper and showing the showing the unit to the tenant, but they're the ones that are working with the property manager and the maintenance team and making sure that things are being taken care of. And so typically you will have a third-party professional property manager, assuming it's a larger asset You'll have a third-party professional manager, but then the management team, the syndicator, their asset manager is the one who's talking with them saying, hey, you know, we've got these 10 vacancies. What's going on? What are we doing to fix this? I went by and walked walked the property and realized that the lawn hadn't been mowed for a month. What's going on here? So the asset manager is going to coordinate with the property manager to make sure that the asset's being maintained in the proper ways. Nick, when you were talking about the team, you mentioned that, you know, part of the team is having that CPA on board. What kind of things would the CPA help with and how would physicians benefit from either being the syndicator or being the investor in one of those groups? Yeah. So one of the great things about, particularly if you're investing in real estate, is there's lots of tax benefits. And you will want to make sure that you're looking at a CPA for this because I'm not the tax expert. But one of the great things about real estate is depreciation. And so many times if we're looking at an asset, we know that, for instance, the roof is not going to last forever. And so it might last 25 years or so, let's say. And so the IRS will allow you to deduct sort of some of the value of that roof as an expense, so to speak, to lower your the, what, how the income looks. With real, asset, with real property, there are situations where we can sometimes take all the depreciation up front. And in doing that, we say that I invest $100,000 on a deal you're doing. And you do all the 100% depreciation up front. What that does is it makes it look like I'm losing $100,000 on paper for the IRS. I haven't lost any money at all, 
but on paper, it looks like I lost $100,000. And so with that, not only do I have $100,000 that's invested that I'm getting distributions and hopefully going to get a return on, in my first year of investment, it looks like I lost $100,000. So that's going to be $100,000 in taxable income less that I have. And so not only are we going to get returns, but we're also going to have major tax advantages when we're investing in real estate. And so a CPA is going to help with that. And they do a cost segregation study to determine what that's going to look like. But that's a huge, huge savings. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of my physician clients get into this space. It's because they say, I'm making good money with my W-2 and I don't want to give all that to Uncle Sam. And so real estate's a great way to invest and make more money while also keeping a little bit away from that money, keeping a little bit of that money away from Uncle Sam. I can definitely see where that would be beneficial for the W-2 employee that can't really write things off. This gives you some way to maybe shelter a little bit of money on your investments. That sounds great. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, if someone wanted to get in touch with you and start this process of becoming a syndicator, how would they get in touch with you, Nick? So a couple of ways you can go to our website, it's polymathlegal.com. That's P-O-L-Y-M-A-T-H-L-E-G-A-L.com. Or you can find me on most social media at Nick the Lawyer. That's N-I-C the Lawyer. I'm there on Instagram and TikTok and posting content a lot that's talking about a lot of this stuff. So, and also on there, I have all my links and ways to schedule and phone numbers and all that sort of stuff. So the website or social media would be great places to reach out to us. That sounds good. Well, Nick, thanks for coming on the show and hopefully I'll have you back in the future. You've just been a wealth of information and hopefully you can even go to the next level of teaching us a little bit more next time. Thank you. Whenever you're ready for round two, hit me up and we'll get you taken care of. Sounds good. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in and I hope you'll be here next week for Grand Rounds.